Um, welcome, Patrick, to Big Mama Hex podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I know we've talked a couple of times, but this is your first official time on the podcast. So welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. So let's dig right in. I wanted to talk to you today about the current, well, I guess I'm not even sure if I'm keeping up properly, Patrick. I wanted to talk to you about the exhibition um, about Mountain Mary. Um, hang on one second, sorry. Um, that is currently on view virtually at your new website, which is also very exciting. And I wanted to dive right in and get into all things Mountain Mary with you because as far as I'm concerned, you are an utmost expert on things Mount Mary and the folklore and also um, especially particularly the healing work that she did. And I really want to talk to you about the piece that you made and also how you curated the collection and brought the pieces together. And that's a whole lot of things to go right into. Sure, absolutely. I, well, we can just talk about them and I can pull them up if I need to, uh, okay, um, to take a look for any references we may need. But the name of the exhibition that we were working on that of course you contributed to and a number of other artists and we're so grateful that everybody was willing to do this. Um, the name of the uh, exhibition was Mountain Mary, Contemporary Visions of the Saint healer. We went with this idea because the hope was to present the ways in which new generations of artists, but also the community at large, views Mountain Mary as not only a historical figure, but also someone who's continuing to inspire us in the present day. And I think that each generation find new, finds new layers of meaning within the work that she has done, um, who she was as a person. And, you know, each generation finds different aspects of her story fascinating. And my hope was to try to um, give voice to some of those um, aspects that maybe had not previously been written about, or maybe the things that, that had been only mentioned in a few scant sentences in, in, uh, in, in various articles or things like that, but really try to expand upon her as a person. So um, I asked a number of different artists to produce commissioned works for the Heritage Center. And uh, I, I produced one as well on the side. And I'm actually working on another one right now too um, that we can talk about as well. And my hope is that this is an ongoing collection at the center, that we have a Mountain Mary collection. My hope is to expand this by next fall, by next November, because I would like to open an in-person gallery exhibition at our new headquarters by next November. Um, her, her departure from this earth was on November 16th, 1819. And my hope is to be able to, uh, to have some form of, I, I don't want to say veneration necessarily, but to, but to pay homage to her as, as a figure. Um, it used to be in the past that there were pilgrimages that would go to her property every year. Yeah. Um, but the reality is this is private property right now. Yeah. And it's also an agricultural property. And uh, I know the owners and I'm, I'm friendly with them. Um, but it's also one of those things that, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, who wants to open up the property to whoever? So my hope is really to make this an opportunity for people to have a place to go to do that kind of pilgrimage idea, to see these different ways that Mountain Mary has been conceived of over the years. And some of them are kind of edgy, as you've probably yeah. seen from our exhibition. Folks can check out the exhibition at pagerman.org. Um, go to our exhibitions and collections highlights, and you'll be able to find the link to Mountain Mary right there. Um, so 
Yeah, um, Rachel, your piece, I, we talked about this very early on, and I was delighted by some of the conversations we were having about emphasizing Mount Mary as a healer. And there are a lot of different folks who had different ideas about what that meant. And uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about yours as well? Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about my piece, but I didn't want to waste too much of your time because I have so many questions for you. But I did want to say to you, the way that I approached the piece was definitely shifted and shaped by your by your um, input and your knowledge. So I do really value that and appreciate that. And I think that's really something so important and strong in our community, particularly with folk artists or however these people identify themselves as artists, um, because it's super important to have that exchange of ideas and be able to shape, I mean, it's folk culture, folk lore, you know, folk tales, folk stories. It should be a, a combination of the community. So I wanted to thank you for that, number one, because honestly, Patrick, as you know, I did not grow up in the area, though my family members knew of Mount Mary. Um, I don't know much about her. So I came in at a very different angle than maybe some of the participants. And the thing for me that always, when I try and approach something in this context, um, is I want to visit the land where she had been and spent time. And it's difficult. As you mentioned, I'm very observant of people's privacy and same thing with the sacred oak, it's on private property. It's something that I very much value as a person who respects privacy and even going around and trying to find hex signs and stuff, you know, it's, it's you want to have that respect. And that's something you and I have talked about before too. It's very important. And I do feel that there are some people that they get so excited and not the participants in this project, but people in our culture that don't think about that a lot. I think they just get so excited to follow their rabbit hole, but I think it's very important to point out, and I'm glad that you brought that up because we have stopped by, we have driven by and just stopped by to take a picture from far away, you know, but what I'm very interested in, and I hope it's part of the exhibit, is the space that she was, like the land that she was living on. It would be really neat to be able to get an idea of that space. And I know there's a way that you can like go from a church and not really be on private property, but you know, I don't want to get into all that because of course, as we mentioned, I really respect the private property, but um, so just having spent a lot of time in Oli, um, I was very much thinking about what it feels like to be in that land and on that land. And you and I have talked extensively about how when we're feeling a little bit like we need some direction, we'll go to perhaps like a cemetery or I spend a lot of time in Spangsville. A lot of my ancestors are buried there. And that whole area for me is very important and palpable when I visit. And it's interesting because I know that you've mentioned before in interviews with me about just saying, hey, what should I work on next? You know, to, to the people that are there and having that, um, you know, honoring their interest in, in, in how we can help this message and this folk culture stay alive and, you know, all the stories, all the things. So, so I kind of thought about that a lot, that area, because it's not that far away. Um, and it really informed the work. And the way I approached her is not as, as it's a portrait of Mountain Mary. It's actually a portrait of, to me, her spirit and people that I know that have been very much touched by her. So I appreciate you asking because I did look to Susan Hess and um, I really thought about, you know, the way that she looks and the way that she has been influenced by her. And also my friend Ruthie, who I mentioned, um, is also an herbalist. And, um, you know, I was more trying to capture the essence of the inspiration that she's given us. So it's funny because unfortunately I'm like, one of these artists that it always tends to sort of look a little bit like me because I've stared at myself the most, but 
it's really supposed to be more of sort of a mirror of the the gifts that she gave us and the inspiration that still absolutely lives on um, with her. It was a funny time in the year though, so I wasn't able to get a hold of all of the things that she would have used, but I love the write-up that you wrote as well. And I will share that. I'll probably edit that in because I love the way you talked about the piece as well. But yeah, this idea that her spirit lives on and that's the way that I approached the work. And, and it was really, really a great experience and took kind of a while because sometimes you need to let the art work work its way out, you know, and let mm -hmm. it come to you. But one of the things that you shared with me to check this book out, and this was incredible to read, particularly pertaining to Mountain Mary lore and, and the legends. And in my own research, I have found a lot of mis misunderstanding about certain aspects of our culture. And I, this book is amazing. Thank you for telling me to check mm -hmm. him out. And in fact, Patrick, I'm checking him out about the groundhog day two and it's like his his work is just Don Yoder friends I'll link this too um is an incredible incredible writer and and contributed so much but I love the way he talks about it's very different than other scholars in the way they approach um this work and I love that about him because I feel like he's really still part of the folk I really feel he's still so and I never got the chance to meet him and I know that you did and I know you're very inspired by Don Yoder's work and I can feel I can feel that from you as well, like that torch was passed and you're also giving that to our community. So I wanna take an opportunity to thank you, especially for putting together the show um, because it's, it's so, so important to have the knowledge as a scholar, but also to be so connected to the folks still. And I really value that about what you give us, Patrick. So thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you, Rachel. And uh, Don Yoder's definitely still with us, inspiring all of us. Um, I, I should yes. also just say, coincidentally, I'm wearing his scarf today. So oh um, my God. he's a person I think of every day. He's been an immense influence to me. One of the things I really appreciate about Don's work, um, and you touch base on this in the essay um, on the Saints legend in his work, yes. Discovering American Folk Life, which we published through the Heritage Center. Um, one of the things that I think helps to make his work um, a little bit different, sets it apart in some respects. Um, you know, sometimes people are generalists where they know a lot about or know a little bit about a lot of things. And then there's some yes. people who are who know a lot about some very specific things. Don's he was both a generalist and and very um, uh, specialized, and he was yeah. specialized in many ways in the general, um, the specifics of daily life. Um, and he was able, in my opinion, to to craft a narrative about Mount Mary that really helped to clarify who she was. And one of the problems was, of course, that many people assumed that Mount Mary was this war widow who retreated into the Oli Hills, and that was, in many ways, she was then kind of standing in the shadow of a deceased revolutionary war hero. And it, it, because of that, people never really cared to get to know who she was. And yeah. Don kind of said, you know, this isn't true, that, that there's no evidence that she was ever married. And um, in fact, all the legal documents really show this. And in fact, they refer to her as a single woman. And folks don't even have her correct um, birth date in many of the uh, information that's out there because they'll claim that she, uh, you know, was 75, but then they'll give the wrong date for her birth, which was largely espoused by by uh, uh, Volan Weber and some other authors from the 19th century who concocted these stories about her. So it's really interesting. Um, I, I recently published an article that's going to soon be on the Pennsylvania Heritage website, Pennsylvania Heritage oh, Magazine. 
is the magazine of the uh, Pennsylvania Historic and Museum Commission. Um, I did an article for them on Mountain Mary, and uh, the winter issue uh, just came out, winter 2022, and it's in that, but it won't be available online until spring. Um, the interesting thing about this is, you know, I really tried to delve into the primary sources. I mean, because she has a will. She, she yes. signed her name. I mean, she's a real person. She's not just yes. an individual that you can tell stories about and claim that she could just be anything that you imagine. And now there is an aspect of that when, you, when a person becomes part of oral tradition and part of folk stories that people will elaborate and exaggerate and dramatize and and that's kind of natural but at the same time she's a real person and mm -hmm. I think that if we look closely at the things that were documented about her we might actually find some surprises um, like there was a uh, uh, there was a man by the name of Benjamin Hollinshead who visited her the year of her of her passing but then he sent a friend within just like a year or so to collect more information about her immediately following her death so these are these are current with her lifetime and right. that's where we know that she lived to be 75 years old that's where we also find out that there's this mysterious reference to her practicing vivisection which other people have said uh is she veterinarian like what are they talking about because that that's kind of a gross term about that's that's a word for live dissection i yeah. believe that they got the word wrong and were actually trying to say venusection which would have been common for healing at that point in time venusection is another term for bloodletting this was a common okay. form of healing that would have been done it was orchestrated by the movements of the moon and the signs of the zodiac in relation to the moon this is a really comprehensive healing system that would have been really common during that time and i i think that they just used the wrong word when documenting yeah. this because I, I can't imagine the person who's also purported to have been so kind to animals that she wouldn't kill groundhogs she would trap them and and take them elsewhere and she would have to walk on foot to take them wherever she would would drop them off to get rid of them because mm -hmm. she would not harm animals and in fact even when she has people at her property in 1819 in order to um to host them, there's no meat on the table. They describe everything that she puts on the table. So it, it, it's possible that she either saved her meat because it was just a luncheon, but it's also possible that, that that story about her not wanting to harm animals could have also extended her diet as well. She kept cows, she was very prolific, she made cheese. There are cheese makers in the Oli Valley now who are trying to carry on these important traditions. She made lots of butter, and that was really where her her uh, income came from. Um, but Benjamin Hollinshead's friend was the uh, the individual who also said that her income was supplemented by this this healing practice that he referred to as vivisection, but probably meant venusection, uh, bloodletting. Okay. Um, so this is interesting because a lot of folks knew that she was purported to be a healer, but there's almost no primary sources that say what herbs she had or what herbs she used. So we have to rely upon the stories that people gave and some people didn't cite sources about where those stories come from so it's a it's an interesting and fascinating thing there's also of course you know it's controversial whether or not she practiced Brauchereye and yeah. I, I find that kind of kind of uh, humorous in some ways because we know and if you if you take a look at the book that I wrote uh, and was and published in 2018 powwowing in Pennsylvania You'll yeah. find that there were lots of conventional doctors of the time who who practiced brauche or powwowing as it was called, and um, and that's actually an 18th century term as well. Um, and just the fact that people never called her that doesn't mean that she didn't. Now, I'm not going to say right. that that conclusively proves anything, but the stories have been, and Don Yoder um, very aptly uh, describes this, that there were stories about her performing various rituals. And my thoughts were, if she's a healer who, you know, spent part of her youth in, in, in Germany and then came 
as a first-generation immigrant, settled in the Oli Valleys, and was known far and wide as a healer, but not of the conventional sort, I think it's probably, uh, there's something to those stories that claim that she was a, uh, um, a Brauchern. And uh, that's part of why I produced a painting that shows her placing her hands. She has one hand on the crown of a person's head and the other hand kind of hovering behind the person's head. He's sitting on a chair. It's all the specific references that we would recognize today as a healer who is using, um, in this case, probably prayers or some form of other ritual while laying her hands on that person. And I would always refer to this, as many people would refer to it, um, you know, as alternately folks would refer to it as, as a magical healing practice or whatever. I prefer to think about it as a culturally specific form of care. So mm. that means that it's not just about one particular desired outcome. It's, it's a way that people practiced healing that was less specific in terms of whether or not it was going to affect a, a particular cure, but it was certainly going to be a form of care that people valued. And part of the reason why it was, you know, transmitted from one, one generation to the next and passed down as a tradition. So to me, that's really important about the Mountain Mary narrative. Yeah, for sure. And with your actual piece, I'm looking at it right now. Um, I love the way that she's actually looking as well at the viewer. I, I just really, can you talk a little bit about specifically how, what your process was as an artist to take all of these years of being so familiar with this, this folk healer and then, and then putting it into one piece. Like it, it's, it feels so, it felt really, it took me a long time because it felt really high stakes because you know, how do you encompass so many different feelings and visions of this person and, and the, like, where, like, for example, our friend Ben, he approached it with the landscape in, in the, in the image, you know, and just how to pick the pieces. So I'd love to hear about how you came or how, what your process was to actually settle on this you know, with all of the information that, you know, I'm, I'm just dying to know more about this piece. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's there's a sense to which you're right. There's there's some heaviness to making those kinds of choices. I kind of, when it comes to art, I kind of dive in because I am not a portrait artist. Um, in fact, you know, I I painted in college. I painted prior to college. I painted a lot at different periods of my life. But this is the first time I I really painted anything that was something other than a barn star um, in probably, I want to say probably like 10 years or more. So like, wow. I really haven't done, like I haven't painted a figure. I, I make art of all different kinds and it doesn't always go to the public. So people don't always see sure. what I'm doing or working on. Um, I've recently been doing a lot with um, silhouette images like Sharon Schnitta and that kind of thing, um, which we can talk a little bit about as well. Um, yes. but really what I was trying to capture here, it, it, it had to get worked out on the canvas. Um, I looked yeah. at some references. I, I try to find um, especially um, inspiration in classical works, Albrecht Durer. Um, I, I look at a lot of um, works to try to see how they handle people. And I'm yeah. not going to say I, I achieved anything near what those artists are doing. I'm not, I'm not trying to drop those names because I, I think that this piece in some way would convey that to anybody other than me. But I look at artists to try to understand how they, how they conceive of people and how they relate to them. And uh, what I was able to do was basically start with some pencil sketches. I sketched the figures separately and then started piecing them together. This was originally a painting that had a big barn star on it. And I thought 
I would center the barn star directly over the hand on the, that's on the crown of the head and that those yeah. radial lines would somehow be part of the composition. And, you know, the more I worked on it, the more I realized that I was not either not a skilled enough painter or not maybe didn't have the vision to m bring those two things together. I saw, ended up seeing the final product as being very different. And as I really started moving into these high contrast, um, really dark, shadowy spaces, the figures emerging. Um, I just felt like I couldn't do justice to that at the same time that I was trying to preserve the underlay of this, this massive 16 pointed star I was working on. And I just thought, eh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go over it. So what I ended up doing was, um, I ended up taking the, uh, um, the figures and trying to just get them to emerge from the darkness. And if you know anything about the work that I've done otherwise, I, I'm often high contrast with everything I do. Everything I do is really yeah. high contrast. And I think it has something to do with how I see things. Um, mm -hmm. The figure of Mary changed dramatically as I was working. She got younger. I was working really? on a woman who was probably, my original thought was she was going to be maybe like in her 40s or 50s, I wanted her to have like, the original drawing I did, she had kind of like almost a smug confidence to her. Mm. And the reason I did that was like, I thought I thought of Mary as being this like tough person. Like she's living out there by herself. Like there's no nonsense in that. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and all of the all of the descriptions of her just exuded this confidence to me. And I just thought yeah. that, that, you know, and of course that built over time. And as I oh, worked sure. on her, it, it, she just ended up becoming someone who maybe could be in her 30s, maybe a little younger. She moved out there, out to out to Oli, um, uh, likely between the age of, of, of 30 and 40, um, definitely in her 40s. And, uh, you know, was already considered to be an abbess at that point in time. By 1790 census, she was referred to as wow. the abbess. So there was some precocious nature to this, because usually you think of abbesses, these are people who are aged, these are people mm -hmm. who are hold the authority of being an elder. Right. She was questionably whether or not she was an elder at that point in time. So wow. I, I, I ended up painting more and more, and the more I worked on her, I, I, I this figure just emerged that had like reddish hair and freckles and and was conceivably like had some confidence and kindness, but was also like, maybe just not as like not as like tough as I had yeah. really intended and and that was kind of once it started like it, it kind of took on a life of its own and I just felt like you know what like Mary was known for her kindness and yeah. like I yeah. will say among the Pennsylvania Dutch we sometimes have a tough form of kindness at times um we respect the you know the toughness that comes with hard work and kindness mm. can be Kindness can be uh, severe, and uh, maybe maybe that is part of who Mary was by the time she was written about later in life, but this certainly depicts her younger, and uh, it, it was surprising to me how it ended up, and at some point, I just had to step back from it, because I was yes. working it, and reworking it, and layering, and and adding, and deleting, and darkening, and lightening, and and just like maybe even overworking it, and I thought, like, if I swear if I have to do the whole rework the whole shadows in relation to the lamp one more time i'm 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 just going to like <laughs> and and these were were i'm working on these either at night with a headlamp in my wow. office most of the time i was wondering how you were getting so, this done yeah I, I was doing it in the dark half the time so wow. or i was doing this during the day like and and i just i would work on it for like maybe like 15 20 minutes at a time um because you know young children at home you don't get a lot of time oh, yeah. to just like you don't have hours to agonize over something. And normally when I work, I, I, 
I work on something for long, long stretches because something emerges at the end of that. That's yeah. really important where you get it, you, you look at it and you know what needs to be done. And I was mm -hmm. not getting the, really the continuity to do that. So I was just making a lot of hasty decisions with this painting. I think it, it, it kind of is a hasty painting um, and it, it became what it was going to be. I didn't feel in the sure. end I was, you know, so again, I'm not a portrait artist. So I, I, as much as I may have agonized over some of the thinking involved with this, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't consider myself a painter, um, but wanted to make sure that this exhibition had a fair number of voices. Right now I'm yes. actually working on a Mountain Mary um, silhouette series where it's oh. going to be built around um, the architecture of her homestead, her grave site, um, stories about her, relation there'll be other people in it because i really think you can't just draw a lone person even though she was alone a lot of time according to stories i wanted to make sure that those human connections are part of these so i i've been working on this and working on these vignettes that are all going to get added together um i like the way paul weand did that with his kind of like circle with the barn star in the center of it vignettes yes. of her life in between the points of the star her in the very center i thought he was kind of daring in the sense that he went for a younger mary um there were a lot of uh, images of mary that were these old wizened kind of images of her and i think they're all they're all facets of the story um i wanted to steer clear of kind of the revolutionary war widow image though yeah um, so. yes <laughs> yes, and I'm very grateful for that. And you know, it's hard sometimes, um, just in general, to push against these narratives have that have continued to grow and grow and grow. And it's hard sometimes as an individual to say to someone, well, actually, that's not exactly right. And it's nice to have a body of work that re represents um, this idea that maybe it's time to start shifting you know, to being more accurate. And as you said, primary resources, of course, in my new position, that is super important. You know, we, 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 we both walk this tightrope of, you know, and many of us in, in the culture do in these kinds of positions where we're both trying to honor folk life and, and the culture, but also honor the facts and the primary resources and the fact that this is a real person. Like, what is the purpose to sharing this story? And you know, how do we honor this person, but also, you know, honor the facts of, of the, the, the actual thing that happened here and how can we relate as a modern culture? And, you know, I think all of these things are very important and especially just thinking about folk life with the things that you've done. And also Don Yoder, of course, is somebody that I go to now. And it's funny when you started talking about um, the moon and all of these things and, and the stuff that he did about Groundhog Day, it's really, really, I'm just, eating it up. I'm loving his booklet on, um, our book on Groundhog Day, but, um, so yeah, I mean, the tightrope, Patrick. So there, there's what a couple things you said. I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you, but there are a couple things you no, said do, that I thought do. were kind of interesting to, to build upon. If I may throw yes, a couple sir, ideas please. out, you know, I think it's important for us to not only be accurate with Mountain Mary, but also imaginative. And some of the pieces yes. that we have in this exhibition are very imaginative. I think one of the things for me was, how do we imagine a woman from the 18th century who for one reason or another found herself being a highly profitable farmer who is able even during after her death to provide for her family monetarily right. um, who never married um, whether by choice or whatever 
um, whether there is a, tr a, you know, any truth to this idea that that her betrothed died or whatever, we have to remember that like we we have this strong female pioneer hero that we're dealing with here, and we need to we need to address it as that. We need to talk about her that way. We we need to stop looking at her as just this demure little person who escaped to the woods because she couldn't handle life. Right. I, I, I firmly reject that narrative. If there's yeah. any element of truth of, of finding refuge in the forest, I, I, I have a hard time imagining that someone who was so incredibly stalwart in her efforts to homestead and to care for the mm -hmm. other two women who were living with her in the 1790s, likely yeah. her mother and her one sister, um, being the head of the household during that time. Like, I, I just, uh, I, I, I want to, I want to imagine Mountain Mary as a woman who can inspire us in the present day and challenge some of our notions about what being a woman in the 18th century meant. We need to talk about yeah. this. And we yeah. have so few. I had a, I had a, a colleague ask me recently, oh, I'm, I'm putting together a, a, a speech about some famous Pennsylvania Germans. Do you know of any women? And I was just like, oh. It's just as though, as though women were just support roles and and nothing else and so i i just and i'm not upset with him for me asking that question i'm upset not. with of the course. entire situation where we find ourselves in because this is holding us back and so the yes. sooner that we start to explore the role of pennsylvania german pennsylvania dutch women and what they yes. do for the culture and how they are the backbone of the culture the better off we will be so that was yes. part of I might sound a little passionate about this, but that was part of what this exhibition was meant to do. And my hope was that it would change that discussion. As you said, it, it kind of is hard to say to, to people who are well-meaning, who who are interested in a topic, well, it wasn't exactly that way. And I, I hate mm -hmm. to be that, well, actually voice, because that, that just sucks. No one wants to be the well, actually it does. And, and it's not always well-received as well, no. as you know. Well, people it, don't it, like want to hear that no when no heard no this over and over again no exactly and and i also find that you know we need to be positive no matter what yes if we find ourselves yes. getting trapped in these well it wasn't that way it wasn't that way it wasn't that way those are just like spirals of negativity they leave us yes wondering well well how was it if right. it wasn't that and way, we're just well, then chasing our tail you, now you've just, just taken my story away from me what story can replace it and so my hope right. is to to really try to see what what can we talk about here that's gonna gonna completely change this this way of doing things. So yes. that's my that and, was my hope with all of this. And what I love with how you did it and how you approached it is you did it through visual arts, which is really wonderful. And thank you for that because sometimes, as you know, since you are on the tightrope, um, you can have scholars that just vehemently disagree with people, and they they want to stick to these either the facts facts or these legends that have continued on. And this is the legend because it's been told so many times, um, but they don't often want to uh, build that bridge. And I think through this exhibition, you're building that bridge. And you've been doing this for years too, Patrick, building these bridges. And I always say to you every interview, like, I don't know how you do it because walking on that bridge or building that bridge is difficult stuff. It is very difficult. It's, it's, it's a challenging, position to be in being on both sides and understanding both sides but i think you do it very well and eloquently and we really really appreciate the work that you've been doing and we can't wait for the new facility to open up which i'd love to hear more about as well and how in the meantime we can support um the heritage center it's a very special place to myself and my family and of course i'm an alum of uh, kutztown and we just love uh, the 
all things and the folk fest is I know I'm run through the um why can't I think of what they're called the, the Princeton University Foundation is affiliated with Thank the you. Folk Fest. Is that what you're? Yep. Yes, mm -hmm. they're affiliated with the Folk Fest and, and are helping to get us through this hump of this this lost um, time together. But mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to take a moment to thank you so much. And actually, I wanted to talk to you about something because I look to you as such um, a person who has has so much information about these things that we're talking about and topics. And I'm just starting to learn about, you know these things. And I wanted to ask you, um, I know both of us have Celtic backgrounds as well and heritage. And there's this wonderful author named Sharon Blackie. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Um, she's, she's written some books and one is If Women Rose Rooted. And it's about Celtic um, archetypes. Specifically, she talks about Wales and Ireland. And thinking about Mount Mary in that kind of way, it's really fascinating. But also, um, she's really in, interested in saying to people, if you don't have your own folk tales and folklore, such as the people in the Celtic regions and these deep rooted, you know, they have the bards and they have all of these wonderful rich stories that are based on place and, and the actual land and these, these mythical creatures. And she has a whole series called Mythic Imagination. It's really fascinating stuff. And I really connected to it much more so than any of the Pennsylvania Dutch German religions. This felt really palpably connected for me, but taking it to our region and feeling that sense so, so strongly in Oli and in Spangsville and at the Kime Homestead, my goodness. And then even, even on the Cultural Heritage Center land, there's a shift in the way you feel occupying that space. And, and the thing that I wanted to ask you about is, this is something that is troubling for me and a tricky subject to talk about, but this invented tradition or invented stories, but from outsiders of our culture, it feels not to be like a whiny millennial granny or whatever they call me because I'm 40. <laughs> but it feels really offensive at this point of my knowledge base of knowing so much. And when you pointed this out to me, this Don Yoder piece in this amazing book, um, it felt like, well, here we are. We need to make sort of this disconnect from these stories that were from outsiders that were possibly trying to exploit us. What are your thoughts about that? It feels like, I don't want to be angry and I don't want to be offended, but it feels really offensive to have these stories continue to grow and grow and grow and have these sort of like non-authorities on the culture or people that may have never ever, ever stepped in our area. Like, this is a very magical land. It's very magical. It feels like what, what Sharon Blackie's talking about in Ireland and Wales and, and these, um, Enchanted Life, she calls it. She has a Enchanted Life book as well. And I think about Mount Mary that way. Like, I think about her almost like in um, a Sleeping Beauty, like talking to the animals and, and talking to the earth and, and having this really connectedness to the land. So, so, um, so I have a couple thoughts. That's um, a lot. <laughs> one is I, I encourage imagination. I encourage yes. creativity. I also encourage honesty. And I think one of the difficult parts um, for some is that when there has been an absence of information in Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania German sources, or if people have not been able to find information, sometimes there have been folks who have been inspired to just kind of fill in the gaps with what, you know, whatever creatively they want to create. And I, I'm not I'm not interested in calling anybody out or anything like that. But my one of my one of my concerns is that I frequently have people asking me questions about aspects of the culture that are largely invented. 
And I have to try right. to explain to people what that means, that if you talk to older generations of Pennsylvania Dutch, they won't even know what you're talking about. And these are people right. who experience the culture through and through. So um, without getting too, you know, too wrapped up in that, um, there's also, you know, there's a there's the reality of the fact that young people are right now embracing alternative spiritual modalities. And that means that there's experiences that go along with that. Um, my suggestion to all of those folks is to, you know, if, if that's the route you're going, do it and do it creatively and do it with integrity and and learn yes. as much as you can about the culture and um, be willing to accept the fact that, you know, this this culture has always had such a wide mixture of beliefs and attitudes and ideas um, and, and to be able to, to, to find some peace in that rather than to have to reject or selectively interpret things. We wanna, we wanna try to see the culture as it is. Now, I also wanna briefly mention, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kinda out, out a, uh, um, a new project. So I'm almost done with the layout on a new book that is coming out from the Heritage Center. Um, it is by Dr. William Wise Weaver. And it is a collection of Pennsylvania Dutch fairy tales. And these are drawing wow. upon some well-documented characters and stories, but done in a way that is literary. And I think what we'll find is that younger generations of people who have been looking for the mythical side of the Pennsylvania Dutch culture will be interested in this book. Um, yes. I will say it walks a careful line because of course, mythology, as we know, if you look at the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans, it's bawdy, it's sensual, yes. it's sexual. Yes. It's, got, yes. it's got elements in it of violence and revenge, of things that are grotesque, mm -hmm. things that, that maybe for a wide variety of reasons had not been previously co combined into a story and, and published because of, there's, this, there's a sense of decorum with the, especially Pennsylvania German society publications of the past, which had such good character, and yet they tended to kind of fit within these nicely compartmentalized boxes. And what I'm not talking about the society today. I'm talking about folks like Thomas Brendel and, and William Troxell, who collected um, folk stories. They have a, there was a, a volume specifically called Folk Stories that they put together that touches base on a lot of the same characters that are in this book that William Moyes Weaver put together, but not in a dry kind of literary sense. Um, what I always was disappointed about by Brendel and Troxell's book was that um, it specifically claimed that all these were from dialect sources and that has these tiny little annotations that help clarify dialect phrases that were used in the telling of those stories, but they're all written in English. And to my knowledge, I have no idea where, uh, I mean, I, presumably they could be in Thomas Brendel's papers somewhere, who knows where those transcriptions are. Um, or if they heard them and then just kind of told them back and then wrote it in English, or if there ever were transcriptions of these things. So we're left with this kind of generation of people. And, you know, Thomas Brendel was putting this together with, with Pumpernickel Bill Troxell in the 40s. And they would have been of the generation to have really delved the depths of this. And yet they kind of missed the mark in some ways because um, mm. they didn't take it further. And it also was not literary for them. It was kind of a, they said, well, this has been ignored in academia, but let's move forward. So William Moyes Weaver's done something entirely different. William Moyes Weaver's a fabulous writer. He's taken this in a literary direction, um, taking stories and being able to really make them part of the fabric of life. 
So mm. he's taken some liberties with these here and there, but really these are sure. mostly stories that were told to him by elders within the community that he has taken and decided to present in new ways. And uh, I'm excited by it. Um, I think that, it, you know, it, it always comes with some level of measured risk when you provide these stories. And uh, every every time something like this has ever been put together that pushes the envelope, not fairy stories, but pushing the envelope, there's always some risk mm. to that. Like the Goshenhoppen historians at one point in time released a numbered series of, I shouldn't say a series, they, they issued an, an edition of, a numbered edition of a book called Erotic Folklore of the Pennsylvania Germans. Now, how many people have Stop seen this? It. And I mean, most I of it, to. frankly, is, is it? like from a male perspective because it's like outhouse humor and whatever, you know, like whatever. I mean, but, but the fact is, and, and what I, I have to laugh at how some of it is called erotic, but you know, you know it's like, but it, it's, it's, um, it doesn't take much probably. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and this book has languished in, in archives and places like that. Most people don't even know what exists. So here's something that adds a new dimension to the study of Pennsylvania Dutch culture. And everybody somehow seems to think that like, oh, Pennsylvania Dutch people were prim and proper or whatever, or maybe they'll say they had a hearthy humor but don't embellish upon that or take that a step further. Um, there's just, there's a lot that we're missing about the culture. And I, I think that we're at a yes. critical time to be able to start um, looking at some of this material and, and to be adults about it and recognize that mm -hmm. not every single thing that we present is, is, is going to be, uh, um, you know, kind of a sterile view of the culture. So this new book yes. that William Moyes Weaver put out, it's, it's got some real, uh, real interesting stories in it. It really does push the envelope in terms of social acceptability in some ways. Um, and at the same time, really um, has some solid sources for this information. And I was just fascinated by it. William Moyes Weaver has done oral histories in 25 counties in Pennsylvania for culinary purposes. Wow. And along the way, yes, I was just going to say stories like he knew a, a hunter yes. uh, who lived up in Frystown who told multiple versions of a story called Buckshot Jake of a hunter mm -hmm. who decides to stop hunting because he has this encounter with a woman who is like the king of, or the queen of the forest, and uh, and of all of all living things, and and he ends up accidentally eating meat from rabbit, which her symbol is a rabbit, and he like drops over Ooh. dead because of it. And this is a story that there's multiple versions of it. Have you ever heard of it? I've never heard no, of it. No, that's until amazing. This point in time. That character, however, the uh, um the snake queen, as she re is referred to by um, Thomas Brendel and, and William Troxell, um, is, is a character that's been documented elsewhere. Some people will probably look wow. at this uh, series and say, ah, that's a bunch of garbage. It's, uh, it, there's no sources for it. I fully suspect that there will be detractors. And yet, oh, um, yes. <laughs> I, I think that for those who, who, who look at this a little closer, and yes. then also follow the breadcrumbs to these other stories, yes. we'll find that there are there are precedents for all of these. And um, some of it's an oral tradition that's largely been lost, and some of it is in documented sources that just weren't expanded upon. So I think that there's, there's going to be a turning point in the not-so-distant future where people are not going to have to invent 
new ways of looking yeah. at the Pennsylvania Dutch culture because there will be new ways of looking at the Pennsylvania Dutch culture that are are in the process of being revealed gradually from from real tangible aspects of the culture that have been handed down. So, um, you know, I think I've made a lot of a lot of to do about how this book might be controversial, but um, I've also illustrated this book, um, and so <gasps> this is all done really? with silhouettes, and the silhouettes are are oh all. They're suggestions. They're meant to be imaginary wow. because like you you look at a silhouette and you can't see surprise on a person's face. I mean, if you do a good job with your silhouettes, you can see mannerisms that that are dramatic and they're they're meant to be exaggerated. And part of this for me was I was thinking a lot about my friend Peter Fritsch, who passed away in 2016. Yes. And he was like the master yes. of the Sharon Schnitte silhouette. Yes. Uh, you have Dehana Great right there. Yeah. He was yep. he was a fabulous person um, in so many ways, um, really prolific. He knew just the right way to exaggerate a character, exaggerate the hemlines of their clothing, to articulate mm -hmm. them. Because really, you know, if you just take a picture of me and then like turn it into a silhouette when I'm like just not intentionally striking a pose or something like that, it's going to be really boring to look at. Um, so I really had to think a lot, and I looked at Peter's work, but Peter was was really in many ways riffing on a robust form of silhouette art that was early yeah. 20th century and late 19th century, a lot of it coming out of Switzerland and Austria and Germany, um, all kinds of wonderful material. And, uh, you know, just just Google um, the, uh, you know, Alpine Scherenschnitte and that kind of thing. You're going to find some cool stuff out there. Yes. Um, and I think that what Peter was able to do was really, really find a sense of authenticity in that. And my hope was with these, with these um, fairy tales that William Moyes Weavers put together to, to, to help people to visualize the connection to the culture. Um, and so for me, like I, I really tried to be as careful as possible with how people are dressed with how people, what people's mannerisms are, what the architecture is, um, specific plants that are mentioned, and trying to just get get into the meat of it. And uh, it was a lot of fun to put together. And uh, I'm I'm hoping hoping that people, um, at the very least, can suspend their disbelief long enough to say, "Wow, I never thought about there being a dimension of the mythical and imaginary." among the Pennsylvania Dutch in this way. And that was really my hope with this. So um, it's it's gonna come out this year in 2022. Um, there's there's a lot of steps that have to come into play before sure. I give a target release date. I made the mistake last fall of planning to release oh, these two books that were both painfully late. And uh, everybody was very patient with us while we dealt with supply chain issues and uh, mm. you know the effects of COVID ravaged one of the binderies that we were working with. And so, uh, you know, there was a, some delays there and, you know, it's, it's, it's what is. Um, I always try to take the long view and say, 10 years down the road, is anybody going to mind if it's two months late? Oh, well, we'll see. But um, it stresses me out in the moment, but, um, you know, sure. we're moving ever forward. You also mentioned another thing, and that is um, that we are working on our new headquarters. As yeah. of next week, we're actually going to begin the process of starting to move in our library shelving and some portions of our collection into this new building. There's a lot that isn't done yet, but there's a lot that is done. And it's going to take us Wonderful. the next few months to really settle into this um, in a meaningful way so that it's presentable to the public and uh, that we can get out from behind the backlog. Um, as, as every organization knows, you know, when you have a oh, facility yeah. that's way too small for what you're doing, and for us, like, we just didn't have a facility. We have like you right. know, a barn and a farmhouse and, and a tiny little inadequate library space here on site. 
I don't yeah. think that the original vision included the idea that we would ever become a museum with a with an expansive collection um, that needs proper treatment, that needs professional yes. archival facilities to support it and areas for people to work. You know, we've never had that ability. So we're we're not only looking forward to the space to be able to to have our archival collections um, available, but also to process them because we've not yeah. had the space to do that. We've had we've had space for for storage, and that's been about it. Yes. So we're we're really looking forward to being able to to take a much more expansive view of processing these collections. You know, we we got several hundred boxes from Dr. Don Yoder. Um, this is this is things that uh you know that need to be. Uh, need to be uh, um, cataloged and made available because it's just, it's incredible yes. material. So we're excited to be able to do that. This is a new phase of our, um, of our organization's um, trajectory. And we're looking forward to the growth that this is symbolizing and the commitment on behalf of the university to the Pennsylvania yes. Dutch people and the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Um, this is an institution yes. that was founded by Pennsylvania Dutch people and was really meant to provide educators to the Pennsylvania Dutch community and the surrounding Tri-County area and beyond. And those educators went all across the United States and continue to do so. And the uh, the grads of Kutztown University affect their communities in really important ways. And of course, the definition of that community has expanded over time beyond just the Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, and we will also say that this, this organization, the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center, represents some of the commitment to um, continuing to preserve the community and the roots of this institution. And so we're excited about that. Um, yeah. I will say if people are feeling really excited about this project and want to you know, want to in one way, shape, or form find out about how they can get involved or support it, um, you can go to yes. the Kutztown University Foundation's website, which is www.kuf.org backslash landing dash heritage. And you can find out more about um, this project. Um, there are ways people can still support. We're still doing fundraising. And uh, there are a lot of folks I know who are looking for a way to have a meaningful impact um, in the community. And, uh, you know, the Heritage Center is one place that people can consider um, a legacy and how they may be able to foster the kinds of work that we're doing for the future for new generations of Pennsylvania Dutch people because we know our traditions have to be passed on to the next generation if we want those traditions to continue and that means they're going to grow they're going to change there's also a lot of opportunity for young people to establish meaningful connections with the oldest generations in our community and one of the ways mm -hmm. we're going to be doing that is by starting a new oral history initiative at the Heritage Center as well, recording in our new facility. And this is really, really exciting. So um, there's lots of stories so that are going to cool. come out there. And who knows, maybe there will be a, a volume two of some some fairy stories at some point in time, once we get a chance to uh, to hear more voices of people who are still in our community, who, who know these stories, and uh, who told these stories around um, hunting camp campfires, who, who listened to their grandparents, who remembered putting a bowl of milk out for the little humpback man who lived on the farm, who yes. was the, the house and farm spirit, who took care of things. Um, these are all traditions that if we, uh, if we don't document them and talk about them now, we'll never know that they existed. Right, and it's so interesting um, because I brought up Sharon Blackie because the importance of the knowledge and experience of the land to inform these stories is so imperative, I think. Um, and I'm just, my brain is like exploding right now. I love William Moyes Weaver's work so, so much. And he is is an author that I really enjoy his style. And actually Zach Langley 
told me to check him out when I was doing my thesis because I am not a writer, I'm a creative writer, and I love the way he approached food and the topic and the way he, um, you know, categorized things and, and t takes you through the story. And it's just, it's, he's a wonderful, also an amazing writer, and I'm so excited! And I'm he's freaking a, out. <laughs> and he's a cook. And one of the things I have yes. to say that there's food in these fairy stories because food is part of them. Of I mean, think about Hansel and of Gretel of, of, of the German grim um, traditions of, of, of uh, fairy storytelling. Food is in and through it. Well, this, this collection by William Moyes Weaver has Pennsylvania Dutch food directly involved, like, like the St. Gertrude's wow. Day Dutch that is sprinkled in, in the corners of the garden to bless the garden. All that kind of stuff is in there. And there are a lot of people oh. who've never heard of this stuff. The one thing that I find so, so fascinating cool. too is um, when you when you look at food ways, they are in and through our culture. And it's not yeah. just about, well, so-and-so baked this with these ingredients and that's how it done and it's done and this is how it looks and this is what time period it's from. William Moyes Weaver manages to capture who the people are what they talk about while they're cooking, mm. what the significance, the context. There's a broader, cooking isn't just about documenting food. It's about yes. the connections that people have over the food, yes. the way in which that yes. food plays critical roles in human relationships. And that's what I think has always yes. set his work aside or set his work apart is, is, is yes. helping to define the character of the community. And, uh, you know, yes. there's many ways of looking at that community. Um, but I, I really appreciate his contributions in that respect. 100%. I can definitely agree with that because you feel like it's about the experience, the whole experience and the familial experience and the experience as you're a grandchild, you know, and even just, you know, I'm thinking of um, Scott Yoder and talking about how he would hear his grandfather speaking Deitch and wasn't allowed to speak and his mother, or his grandmother was in the kitchen and saying, no, 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 no. And he'd go downstairs to the basement, things like these, these stories that I think William Moyes Weaver captures so eloquently. I'm just very excited. And it's funny because this is something that I have felt there's absolutely a hunger for, but also for myself, I have wanted this so badly and have sort of been rolling around with this idea. But I, of course, am a visual artist. And I thought, you know, the only experience I have is the experience that I've had on this land and, and the feelings that I get. And I'm just so excited to hear that this is happening. Because as you know, a lot of times as a community, we'll get sort of stuck in like one area that we're like, we're really, really diving real deep into, like, for example, you know, for a long time, it's been the language and preserving the language and keeping the language alive. And I'm just really excited to hear um, that you two have worked on this because I think it will be done in such a, uh, what did you say, um, with such integrity and capturing, like he captures the whole story. I love that. And then to hear about the um, silhouettes makes me very, very happy. My mom, it was a Sharon Schnitta artist, so she wouldn't call herself that, but it was a very special style of work that she worked in and definitely influenced my interest in in high contrast and everything and peter fritch's work is amazing so i can't wait to see this i'm very excited and i'm actually grateful that you had this lull and you had some time with all the the things that are always happening and the bustle and the hustle at the heritage center that you were able to work on this piece because what a gift to us all and you know i'm very excited to see this and i know that it will do very well because there's so much hunger out there for these kinds of stories. And I'm very excited to hear this. I am just like very excited. So congratulations, that's awesome. So, and also having been an alum of Kutztown and having been there during a struggle with 
um, people being enrolled in enrollment and working as a graduate assistant for the visual arts department, I am so beyond, I could just start sobbing that they took, um, that they saw the value in, in the Heritage Center because it is a very dear place to us all. And the roots of the college and all of the work that's been done, it's very exciting that they had the integrity because many colleges don't. And I am blown away and just so grateful. And I may not keep ignoring all the calls to donate to Kutztown because I'm very, very, very grateful for their effort to preserve something that's so important to so many of us. So here it goes. Um, thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us. And I will definitely link all of those things in ways that we can support you. And I will be donating to the foundation today because I am blown away that they, we have continued to say, why isn't there a folk art program? It's a college that was built on this. And, and to me, this is them paying that respect to the work that you've done, particularly in um, Naomi and Mandy and all the wonderful players in mm -hmm. this amazing, this amazing, amazing journey that I've only had a few years to witness, but I'm profoundly impressed and very, very grateful for them believing in you and believing in what you all are doing. So I'm really, really excited for you. And in a weird way, like proud of you in the short time we've known each other. I mean, this is just very exciting. Absolutely, and thank you so much, Rachel. And I hope you would consider, now that we have this new building and there's gonna be a new a gallery space, that okay. in the future, maybe we can exhibit some of your work as well. Um, yes, I think that would be absolutely. a wonderful thing to consider some form of a thematic installation. I remember when you um, created that wonderful installation in the farmhouse with the yes. dress and the text and the typography <laughs> and the Pennsylvania Dutch. I, I just, I thought that was so fabulous. So I hope that you'll consider oh, doing very, something very in the much. future with us. And Anytime, uh, buddy. Anytime, Patrick. We just, absolutely. We, we adore you. Um, and I just wanted to say as well, um, you know, probably I'm, I'm getting teary because all of, all of my ancestors that struggled to be able to even be proud of who they were or speak with an accent. My grandmother was put in a speech clinic in college. I mean, this is really important. And I know sometimes when you're in the middle of it and it's so crazy, but we just want to really thank you all for your efforts. And I am definitely going to make a donation and very, 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 very good stuff. So it's been so wonderful. And what a highlight in this strange, dark time. Um, so give my best to Naomi and all the folks over there and, and wonderful job. And we hope, we hope that we'll see everyone at the Folk Fest this year. I'm thinking it's going to happen. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be like one big family reunion. I'm extremely yes. <laughs> excited, and you know what? It's also about maybe drawing a bigger circle too, because I think yeah. this year, uh, Heather Zimmerman, who is the new director of the Folk Festival, she is looking about ways to to bring in new audiences of people, add things to the festival, keeping, of course, those those standbys that everybody relies on, at the same time yeah. bringing in new aspects to try to broaden the horizons of the festival, bring in new audiences, especially young people, families, people yeah. from outside of the area. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a, a family reunion and perhaps a bigger family than we knew. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see everybody. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Patrick, and you have a wonderful day. You as well, Rachel. We'll talk Thanks to you so soon. Much. Take care.